The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk about the ferocious fighting across the Donbass, get updates on drone warfare, and hear from Telegraph correspondent Nicholas Smith, who's been on the ground in the east of Ukraine for the past week. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of June, day 119. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor, Katie O'Neill, and Telegraph Correspondent, Nicola Smith, who called us from her hotel in Poland as she heads home after spending weeks reporting from Ukraine. I started by asking Dom and Katie for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's been very violent, as, um, as has been the pattern in recent days across, across the area, mainly artillery-led, so Donbass is still, is still getting an absolute pounding, um, moderate Russian advances there, although I'm very conscious that we've been saying that for a few weeks now, and these, these moderate advances have never have never progressed any more than than just moderate. But in the, in the last 24 hours, there have been um, pressure, extreme pressure on Severodonetsk and some of the villages thereabouts. There's also been a lot of shelling in the area of Kharkiv up to the north, uh, reportedly dozens of civilians killed in there. There was a fire uh, or the shelling created a fire at a gas producing factory um so that's that's that was quite uh, quite a significant fire up there also snake island i think we're going to mention it a bit later that that has been under intense attack uh as well from from ukrainian forces and the latest uh, uk defense intelligence assessment is saying that the the self-proclaimed Donetsk people republic forces or the forces of the self-proclaimed defense people's republic have, have lost 55% of their original strength. They're, they're reporting 2,128 killed in action and nearly 9,000 wounded in action. So huge numbers there and over 50% of the original strength of the so-called DPR. It just speaks of the the, the, the violence, this this attritional nature of the fight in the Donbass right now. Um, got a couple of other uh, drone-related bits and pieces, but I'll, I'll just take a little pause there. Thanks, Dom. Let's come to you, Katie. Um, just p- picking up uh, what Dom mentioned about Snake Island, would you like to add to that? And also, there's been some updates I know you mentioned about Kaliningrad. Yeah, so uh, as Dom mentioned, Snake Island was subjected to a counterattack by the Ukrainians in recent days. And we've had some satellite images released from Maxar, which is that uh, company in the States that has been really keeping a close eye on uh, imagery from uh, Ukraine from the skies, which has really helped to inform the picture of what's been uh, unfolding throughout the war. But these uh, images appear to show quite extensive damage to Snake Island. Uh, The Ukrainians are claiming to have damaged a Russian anti-aircraft system, a radar station and other vehicles that have been stationed there. There is still sort of a differing 
narratives emerging from the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians claimed that they repelled the, what they called what was a mad attack by the Ukrainians, but Ukraine today is saying that they dealt Snake Island a concentrated blow. Um, this is part of sort of an interesting pattern that's been emerging in recent days where Ukrainians are attacking Russian, uh, increasingly attacking Russian territory. Today, we have seen uh, images of a kamikaze drone attacking an oil refinery in the uh, region of Rostov in South Russia. Um, and that obviously follows that oil rig that we discussed the other day in the Black Sea that was attacked uh, by Ukrainian forces. In addition, we saw that Navy tugboat in the Black Sea that was um, reportedly destroyed by Ukrainians the first time, apparently, that they used uh, Western weaponry to destroy any sort of um, Russian uh, vessel. Previously, obviously, we saw the uh, the black uh, in the Black Sea, the the uh, main ship of the Russians being destroyed there by Ukrainians, and this is the latest uh, attack there in that in that region. Uh, you mentioned Kaliningrad, some uh, heated diplomatic um, back and forth between Russia and Lithuania with regards to this ban that the Lithuanians have uh, enacted which will not allow uh, Russian goods to travel between uh, Kaliningrad and Russia if they are uh, any type of goods that have been banned by the EU. Russia has been uh, increasingly uh, upping its rhetoric in terms of how it will respond to Lithuania. Yesterday, they were saying that, you know, in addition to its response being heavy handed, it will be ordinary Lithuanians who will feel the impact of whatever its response may be. Uh, today, we have uh, additional language from the Russian foreign ministry uh, in which they're saying that their response is going to not just be diplomatic, that it will be practical, which is quite an ominous warning. Obviously, we don't want to, um, to, to you know, over egg what they might mean. But the subtext is that, you know, it might uh, involve something of, of mice or there might, you know, it, it, it sort of leaves a number of questions when they're saying that it's not just diplomacy that's going to be deployed to handle this, that, it, um, you know, the, the word that they used was practical. That it's going to be practical um, measures that are uh, used in retaliation for that uh, import ban that goes through uh, 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 Lithuania. And just staying with diplomacy, I know you've got an update from uh, about Boris Johnson's message to allied nations regarding the nature of the peace uh, that that uh, Ukraine might want to perceive, uh, p- pursue at the end of the war. Yeah, so we had a uh, carried a po- report today on uh, Boris Johnson and sort of the messaging that he is coming out with ahead of a G7 summit. There's also a, a NATO summit coming up. He has been a, a, a strong ally of Zelensky uh, throughout the war. They were speaking several times a week and he's been indeed impl- applauded by the Ukrainians and by President Zelensky himself for the sh- strong sh- show of support uh, that he's exhibited throughout the uh, invasion. But uh, yeah, we carried a report today in which Boris is saying and sort of urging uh, uh, other countries in the West not to push Zelensky to uh, settle for a subpar deal. Um, sort of the the briefings that we were receiving from people close to him uh, was that he was saying that, you know, if Zelensky turned around and said, you know what, enough is enough and, and we've suffered enough and uh, it's time to draw this thing to a close, that Boris would be uh, respectful of that and would be supportive of that. But he is saying to allies 
uh, in the G7 and in NATO not to force Zelensky to settle for what he uh, called a shitty deal. Um, he's saying that we must be uh, steadfast in our support for Zelensky in Ukraine. And while they want to continue with this, we should support them in their endeavour to do that. And just one more update from you, Katie, if I may. I know you have to run back to the foreign desk, so thank you so much for your time. But uh, there's been a delivery of German weapons to the front, or to, to Ukraine at least. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, this has been a huge uh, sort of uh, the source of contention in recent weeks, uh, indeed since the war began, what level of support Germany was going to provide. Uh, you know, the Germany and, and Schultz have been accused of being quite slow in their delivery of weaponry to Ukraine and in their level of uh, support, both uh, in terms of diplomacy and in uh, the actual weaponry that they are sending uh, to the front line. Yesterday, we had the first uh, delivery to, or confirmed, um, the first delivery of heavy artillery to uh, Ukraine. So the Ukrainians confirmed yesterday that um, howitzers have been delivered to the front line to them from uh, Germany. It was just last month that Schultz promised to send these, but uh, you know, before that he was accused of being quite slow in, in pledging to send these systems to Ukraine in the language that Ukraine rece- uh, gave yesterday when they received these weapons was that they finally received them from Germany, but uh, they expressed their thanks that they have been delivered to the front line. Well, thank you very much, Katie. Um, Dom, you've been listening to all of that. I know you had some more details on, uh, on the drone warfare. Do you want to get into that? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's been a couple of odd droney things in the last 24 hours. So, firstly, the the uh, the the one that, that Katie was saying there, this this kamikaze drone, it's on social media. You'll see it. I think we've got it on our website. Um, drone flies over about 10 kilometers inside Russia, in the um, right down in the. I, I imagine it's the no, it'd be the Luhansk Oblast. But anyway, it's about 100 k's from the front line. So, you know, quite a significant. Uh, distance from the from the front line of the Donbass, and as we've said, inside Russian territory, this drone flies over, and and crashes into a, an oil refinery inside inside Russia. Starts a large fire. Don't think there's any casualties, but it, but it's quite significant damage by the look of it. Um, it's not a Barakta. It's not a, 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 a Turkish-made TB2 Barakta that we know Ukraine have been uh, have been operating. Initially, it was thought they could be Ukrainian PD1 or PD2 recce drones. That that now looks not to be the case. Um, Chris Owen on Twitter. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. Good good source of open source uh, uh, information there. He's suggesting it could be a Russian four-post drone, which has either been. Uh, well, bought off the open market, unlikely, or uh, more likely captured by Ukraine, and as he says, re- returned returned to Russia. Um, and and he makes the point that, that that might explain the willingness to sacrifice such an expensive drone. I mean, these these are they're not they're not necessarily they're not usually kamikaze drones, so they would have had to have been fitted out with explosives and specifically flown for the mission of of them not coming back. So unlikely you'd use any of your your really precious stuff. So maybe it was a Russian. Uh, a Russian forepost, and of course, if if it was, then that might also help to get it to target. If if the Russian air defence teams are looking at this thing, going, "I don't worry, that's that's one of ours." A quick sort of flick through the reference handbook, um, then you know that that's that's not a bad tactic to have employed by the Ukrainians. So a lot of confusion about what it is and um, and quite who sent it. You know, caveat: then it might be a false flag. Un- don't think so, but but possibly, um, but yeah, a lot of confusion about what what this thing is. But it has it did it did land and did cause some damage. So you, you can see that on on the website. 
Elsewhere, there was a, a Russian Orlan 10 drone, a, a smaller drone, a reconnaissance vehicle, you know, airborne camera, basically, that crashed in Turkey. Now, this is this is particularly weird. It, it I mean, it didn't um, it wasn't destroyed. It was it was found by a local pretty much intact. Again, images from social media. Uh, now, these things are they, they're controlled out to about 120 kilometers from the actual ground control station. But. They've got hours. They can be up, up in the air for about eighteen hours, and and so uh, once they once they fly out of control, they they can as in no longer controlled. Not that they're tumbling out of the sky. But they can carry on for about six hundred kilometers. So where it landed in northern or sort of northeastern Turkey, if you draw a big a big sort of range ring from there, it takes in um, a lot a big portion of um, southern bit of Russia, um, Georgia, but Georgia doesn't have. Uh, all antennas takes in a bit of Armenia. It also takes in a, a small slice of Iran, North Iraq, and North Syria. Well, they're very, very unlikely to have come from there. Now, whether this is a, a Russian uh, unit training, and and um, you know, you only have to look at the the uh, the British Army's underwater drone championships from last week to see an, another watchkeeper that's uh, you know, if, well, it didn't hit the deck; it, it hit the water. Um, yeah, these things go wrong. Um, you got you got to. You know, Train hard, fight easy is the old expression. You, you, you train as you wish to fight. Um, so, you know, you're best to get all your mistakes out of the way um, in training. So these things do happen. So it could very easily have just been a, a normal sort of training sortie from most likely Russia that um, that lost control from its ground station and carried on flying until it sort of landed on some nice soft heather in northern Turkey. But but, but very odd. Speaks again of this. Um, we mentioned yesterday about how the the the, the capability drones give you is nothing new um, or or the desire to see over the hill see around the corner see what's coming next has been there since you know since man has started chucking sticks at each other um, so that in itself is not is not new but the but the, the technology obviously is and how you integrate it uh, with your wider forces is very is very new um, and, and so yeah the, these things are going to happen they're going to they're going to turn up but it's particularly odd that you've got all these um these uh, mysterious drone um episodes happening around the place well thanks don for that um casey i realize you have one more update from us it's a dispatch we've we've got from mariupol uh, tell us about that yeah in today's paper and on the website we've got this dispatch from mariupol i think some of the most interesting reportage that we're seeing right now and we'll continue to see in recent weeks is what life is actually like on the ground in these places that are now occupied uh, by the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, and we've got so the, some such report in the Telegraph today. Um, it's kind of told through the lens of those that are left behind in Mariupol, which is this uh, key city in Ukraine, which was subjected to really a heavy onslaught by the Russians. That's where obviously the Azov steel plant was located, where we saw that fierce re- resistance being mounted um, by the battalion there for weeks on end. Uh, but that city, you know, it's basically raised to the ground by the Russians and uh, now it's uh, being occupied by them. So this dispatch offered a sort of glimpse into the life of those that remain there and some interesting details they see say that these warehouses uh, in that city which once housed things like fruit and vegetables are now makeshift morgues that are uh, housing dead bodies and that there are so many of them that uh, you know it's sort of the level of rot is setting in and you see flies um, swirling around the bodies the people there are also uh, obviously uh, without a lot of the resources and most of the resources that they would have had pre-war. There's a lot of um, poverty and interesting that the people that are there 
now who have had their homes and their livelihoods destroy- destroyed by the Russians are now turning to their captors uh, for a lot, you know, to, to meet a lot of their basic needs, such as food. Um, there was a van uh, in the square, sort of in the centre of Mariupol, which uh, our uh, reporters described as being emblazoned with this said uh, symbol um, and handing out bread and different uh, provisions to the people of Mariupol who are growing uh, increasingly hungry. So, yeah, it, it's interesting, this sense of, you know, having to to re- rely on your occupier for sustenance and for survival. So that's sort of the, the picture that's being painted in Mariupol post-invasion. Uh, well, thank you much, very much, Casey, for that. And thank you, Dom, uh, for your explanation and your uh, uh, account of the the odd things we're seeing in drone warfare at the moment. Um, I'd like at this point to bring in uh, Nicholas Smith, the Telegraph correspondent who's been in Ukraine for a few weeks. Uh, you're on your way home now, Nicola. Um, I'm just wondering what, what's your reaction to everything everything that we've talked about. Is this are these kind of updates are they are they known about on the ground? What was the fighting? What was the fighting like? And what what did you see when you were there? Yes, I mean I, I think these updates are are known. I think what Katie is has just been talking about is very interesting, you know, just talking about what is life like on the ground. And one of the things that we've been looking at very much over the past week, I think the last time I spoke, we were just on our way into Donetsk. We were heading towards Pokrovsk and also um, uh, just kind of getting a bit closer to, to the front lines. And we just really wanted to see what life was like for people. Um, we wanted to find out a bit more from soldiers who were coming back from the front lines who'd been injured. We went to a hospital in Kramatorsk and we were speaking to doctors there. Um, as we were speaking, ambulances were coming in full of soldiers from the front lines before they were transferred onwards um, and westwards. But just speaking to civilians was was a really interesting part of the story and, and how they are coping with that. Because there's been a lot that uh, people have been talking about this war of attrition. And part of that has just been the, the mental health impact on, on the entire nation and just this fatigue that, that people are feeling. I've spoken before about how resilient people are, but they're also very tired, you know, almost four months into to the war they're exhausted, they're dealing with extreme circumstances, they're also very concerned that the West will forget about them, that that there will be fatigue outside of Ukraine. Um, And some people are really struggling to to keep going. Um, We we caught a glimpse of of just some of the the terror that people are living under. When when we went to Pokrovsk, we were... um, we went down to an evacuation train where this is where the evacuation train sets off westwards. And about an hour later, it's, it's, it's quite a, a downtrodden little town, industrial. Um, and, it, you know, there's one hotel there where we were staying. And about an hour into us arriving, it, there, a missile struck and about a mile from the hotel and the hotel shook. And I, I just think that, you know, that kind of gave us a, a glimpse into what people are living with every day. They don't know if they're going to, to get unlucky if a missile is going to strike their home. In this case, thankfully, nobody was was hurt, but um, it created a huge crater in, in the middle of the road and, of a residential street and, and damaged homes. And, and people are just having to live with this kind of pressure all of the time. And, and as you get closer 
to the front lines, you just feel, you just, you hear horrific stories of what people have been living with. Um, one of the stories we did was about a, a hospital clown who, before the war, was helping children with cancer in hospital. He was, you know, working with them and their parents. And when the war came, he, he thought, he and his wife said to themselves, well, we have, we've got to go and get people out. We've got to go and evacuate people who are closer to the front lines. And so he's been taking incredible risks to go and help people who become trapped by heavy, heavy fighting and who have no way to get out. And he's been trying to cheer them up along the way with his red nose, but he's also faced such extreme risks. He's come under fire. He, the Russians have even been firing at his, his van, which says Dr. Clown on the side of it. Um, he's nearly died several times. And, and you meet these incredible heroes, but it's really taking a mental toll on people. And you've also been doing some reporting on the uh, the struggle and the lack of um, supplies and and medicine and medics on the front. Can you tell us about that, Nicola? Yes, I, I was told by people who are operating close to the front lines and who have military experience there that that one of the issues is that there's a shortage of trained medics and that. You know, the, the war took everyone by surprise. There wasn't enough time to build up Ukrainian forces, including the, the logistics like, like medical expertise on the front lines. And so everyone's doing their best and training on the job, essentially. And one of the things that, that we were told was that there is a shortage of people who know what to do um, in an extreme medical situation on the front lines. And that this, this means that you know, soldiers are, are bleeding out where, you know, if, if it was, if people had time to train up and, and get the right equipment and know how to use it, that that wouldn't be happening to the same degree. You, you were in Ukraine for, for several weeks. Um, is, you're now, as I understand, on your way home um, to, to Taiwan. Um, are there particular memories or stories that really stand out for you that you'll that you'll take back? There's yes, there's so many stories that will stand out for me, and just I think mainly the, the people that I met. I'll never forget Jan the clown who who was just incredibly brave. I met so many brave people, but he was up among the, the best of them. That you know he was taking huge risks to go and rescue families who were sheltering in their basements. Um, they had no food, no water. There was incoming shelling, constant incoming shelling. And he described how his convoy was hit and they had to rush behind a, a blazing building to to hide. And, and thankfully, he, he made it out. I've met other people who are also taking incredible risks to rescue civilians. We haven't we haven't published that story yet, so I don't want to say too much. But there's there's huge bravery um, from not only um, the military and, and and soldiers on the front lines who we've met, and untrained soldiers, you know, who the, in one of our stories uh, we spoke to a welder who had just signed up for um, as a volunteer and gone to the front lines and. So you, you meet people like that. You meet people who've really risen to the occasion. Um, they've been tested by extreme circumstances and, and they've found some strength within themselves to do things that they just never thought they could do. But I think also I'll really remember some of the civilians that we met, especially the old people, because 
now a lot of the families and a lot of the young people have have managed to evacuate and managed to to get to safer places which is still has its own hardships you know it's never easy to leave your home and, and your life behind but the people who really stick with me just now are the old people who've been left behind some of them who don't have families you know many of them who've lived their entire lives in these towns that are now just being pummeled by Russian artillery and it, it's just it's a really um, it's su- such a destructive approach to war Russians are just going in they're flattening towns and villages they don't care about the infrastructure they don't seem to care about the people who are still sheltering there and so these old people have many of them have tried to just um they've tried to stay there as long as they can because these are their homes they've got nowhere else to go and we we met a few of them on sunday who were in a shelter that was once full of families but now is is really just full of the elderly who who don't have another option and there was one woman, Nadezhda, who I, I just don't think I'll ever forget her. She was 92 and she she had come from Severodonetsk and she'd lived there her entire life. And she was just so, she was lonely. She was so upset. She just wanted to go home and she had nowhere else to go. And she she said to us, you know, I just, now I just want to die because, you know, what is there that's left for me, and it's so heartbreaking. It's so rage-inducing that these old people have been forced into this situation that they'll never be able to go back back home. You know, we hope that eventually many of the younger people will be able to. But for many of these old people, this is it. I mean, that's 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 them. They've lost their entire lives. You know, and and there was another older man, Stepan, who he he was sitting talking to us and he brought out this envelope and it was full of black and white photos. And he said, you know, this is my wealth. These, this, this was my family. They're all dead now. Um, and he said to us, I lived through, as a child, I lived through World War II and Germans were sleeping in my house uh, before they went to the front. There was tank fire outside, but I've never seen such atrocities as I've seen during this war. And he said, you know, it's like brother killing brother. And those are the things that were really stick with me well thank you very much nicola for sharing that just one more question from me if i may you mentioned just then that your impression is that the russian artillery doesn't seem to care about the destruction and the pointlessness and the and, and and all of that but they in your report you also talk about them how they don't seem to care about the lives of their own soldiers of specifically of the, of the separatist soldiers um can you talk a little bit about that yes that was that was one detail that emerged when we spoke to Serhi, the the welder. He was telling us what it was like on the front lines. And he said that one of the tactics that they had noticed was that Russia is not short of artillery. And so it can just fire uh, as much as it likes at the Ukrainian forces. But he said what it does is that to find out where the Ukrainian soldiers are sheltering, it will... It's sending in separatist um, troops. There are reports that some people have been forcibly forced to join up um, from Luhansk, that they're sending these separatists in with barely any uh, body armor, with uh, barely with World War II type rifles. And 
Sir, he said he, he was convinced that people must be on drugs because they were just walking towards the Ukrainian soldiers, walking towards the, the line of fire with no body armor. And the Ukrainians were then having to fire on these, these separatists. And then Russia knew where they were and they were firing artillery towards the Ukrainians. And it just seems like a, such a sickening, um, cynical tactic to use. Well, thank you very much, Nicola. Um, Tom, I'm sure you have some questions as well. Do you want to come in here? Yeah, thanks. Hi, Nicola. Great to hear you're um, you're safe and in a in a cafe in Poland. I think um, a couple yes. a couple, if I may, um, have the coffee. Um, a couple, if I may, which might be unfair because you, you've you've not long been there. But I'm really interested in the the view of the of the people around you um, and the information environment they're in. And are they are they badgering you for questions they know that you've just been in in ukraine i wonder if they're if their access to information is better than than what we have over here for example and whether or not um you know they would have heard they've got countless they might have countless journalists reporting to them all the time but so i'd be really interested in, in whether their, their sort of standard level of of awareness is 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 higher than we have over here and secondly just what anything on the politics do you get a feel for the for the mood because poland's been very very staunch in its support for Ukraine and I wonder if there was any view of the um, the visit by uh, Mrs. Messrs. Macron, Schultz, uh, Draghi to, to Kiev last week uh, and particularly Mr. Macron in, in the wake of his electoral, uh, electoral um, difficulties a couple of days ago. If, do you mean the views of the polls around me? Yeah, yeah, the, lo- the locals, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm afraid I don't have too much to say on that because I, I literally just arrived, arrived at 2.30 in the morning um, overnight. From, so I haven't really had the chance to speak to anyone here. I've just been working this morning and, and heading out to the airport. Um, I mean, my general impression is that yeah, polls are... They're, they're worried about what's about the proximity of what's happening. I'm, I'm sure they're very aware of, of what's what's going on across the border. Um, but it, it's, I mean, the only impression I have really is that when you you cross the border, you you it's like you're immediately away from the intense environment of Ukraine as you would expect. And so I think, like anywhere, it's it's another. Um, not far off war zone, but it's just very hard to imagine what it's like on the ground, no matter what country you're in. Um, and and that's, as I said, you know, the fear that Ukraine has that they will be forgotten about. But yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that's not a very substantial answer to your questions because it's, it's just not been my focus over the past few days. Um, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, sorry, as, as I said, it was, it was an, an unfair, unfair question to ask. Um, in, in that case, what was the feeling? Did you get a feeling in Ukraine for the for the visit of those European leaders, and and, and how did that go down? Yes, I did. There is, uh, I mean, the Ukrainian government has been tremendous at putting out messages. They've been so good at the kind of information war side of things. Um, so the the public are incredibly well informed through social media, through especially Telegram channels. Um, and just local news. I mean, people do really know what's going on. I think when Macron and Schultz came, people appreciated, they appreciated the, the, the attention and their visit because they are, they do very much want to 
keeping the headlines. They want people to know that this war is, they're in it for the long haul at the minute and that they do not want people just to kind of lose their, just get fatigued by it. There was some concern that when Macron and Schultz came that they would try to pressure President Zelensky to, to come up with some kind of peace deal or propose some kind of peace deal with Russia that would concede territory. And the public mood is very much against that. It's, I haven't met anyone who, who would be happy to do that because they just don't think that Russia would stop there. You know, if, if you give them some territory, they just don't trust Russia to stop there. Plus, they're very worried about the people who are living under occupation and, and the terrible conditions that they face. I think when Boris Johnson turned up, that was just an, it was another boost to public morale, and you know there might have been cynicism for him coming over, but it does keep the story um, very much in the British headlines, and people really appreciated that. And uh, there was also a bit of humour. Uh, there there were a lot of memes going around on the internet about you know showing Boris Johnson being upset by um, by Macron kissing um, President Zelensky on the cheek and people were kind of having a laugh about that as well. And just one final one, if I, if I may. Um, we talk about morale. What, if any, differences did you notice on this trip to your, to your earlier trip? And, and even if morale is high, what slice, if any, is there of, of, of kind of fatalism in there? It can be... It can... Um, be easy in in war zones for for morale to be high, but also to to feel as if as if it's, there's an inevitability to to the violence. Um, and people can 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 be very good fighters, but because they are they've mentally thought, well, I'm not going to come out of this, and and that's not you know clearly that's not a good thing, even if they are great fighters. So I just wonder what if you had any sense for the, for feel of the of the Ukrainian fighters this this uh, on this trip. My sense of morale was that among the, among the military people that we met, among the soldiers or uh, official sources, I mean, obviously they are going to put out, they want to, to keep up this line of we, are, we have strong morale, um, they don't want to show any signs of fatigue. But generally among the soldiers that we met, we had the sense that morale was high, that they were, that conditions were incredibly tough, that they were very short of what they needed in terms of weaponry, but that they felt that they were fighting a just cause and that they felt that they had no choice, that they would they were ready to give their lives to defend their, their lands, their their families. Nobody wants to go to war, but they were they, they seemed very ready to do it and ready to go to the front lines, even though they knew what awaited them and, you know, really hoped for the best. Um, morale among the public, we saw a few signs that it was uh, ailing a bit there. Uh, we spoke to a, a bank manager who had just been rescued from, I think it was Lysychansk, and he had been injured because he'd been out cooking over an open stove. There was, uh, as everyone has to do there, and he'd been injured by some shrapnel. And, and he said that people who'd been living for months 
in a basement were really struggling mentally and that morale was low among them. So I think there's a difference between the soldiers who are really, you know, fighting as hard as they can and, and civilians who are living in horrible conditions and just trying to survive from day to day. There's perhaps more of a sense of purpose among the soldiers I mean, that's, I'm, I'm speaking in very general terms. Obviously, everyone is very different, but everyone has different reactions to things as well. And, and just the, the pressure, one of the things that the, the clown said to me was that he was in Severodonetsk when Grad missiles, I think it was missiles or it was rockets that started coming in. And he said, you know, everyone was thinking there, well, this could be my last moment. And th- that there was just different reactions among them all. One one person was just kind of carrying on as if, it, you know, nothing was going on, just walking past. Another woman was lying on, on the, the ground praying. Um, another man was frozen in fear. Jan was kneeling down and, and he said, you know, it, it didn't really make any difference if the rockets were going to hit, then it would have taken us out. And then there was a sense of relief where he said uh, it, it struck somewhere else. and But then you think that's such a cruel thought because it's hit someone else. And I think everyone's just living with that, whether they're soldiers, whether they're civilians, they're living with this random cruelty of war. And, and yes, there is a sense of, is it my, is it my fate? Am I going to die today? Um, some people turn to faith for that. Other people find different ways to cope with it. Um, but it's just, it's this constant sense of, um, you know, something bad could happen today. And I don't think anyone can escape that. Well, thank you very much, Nicola, for that. That was um, incredibly moving and fascinating. And thank you for all of your reporting in Ukraine. Do stay safe on your your journey home. And I think in the future, we'd love to have you back on because you're, you're, so you're, you, you actually live in Taiwan, don't you? So it'd be very interesting to hear from you at some point in the future how what, what at this point in the war what reaction in Taiwan uh, to to the conflict is um, bearing in mind of course of course the, the, the threat of China to, to their west yes absolutely people are watching very closely in Taiwan and it's really woken up the, the public certainly to the possibility that of the worst case scenario um, the government has always been aware of this and, and building up their, their defence capabilities, but it's certainly changing the way they look at defence and, and, and what what they should be building up and what they should be purchasing or focusing on to as a deterrent so that this never happens. So that would certainly be interesting to, to explore further. Definitely. Well, thank, thank you so much for joining us um, today. Just before we go to our final thoughts, um, Dom, I'd like to come to you. There's a couple more updates. Um, we spoke before we went on air about uh, Boris Johnson announcing a, a training program for uh, Ukrainian for new Ukrainian recruits. Could you tell us a little bit about this? I know you had some thoughts as as a uh, in a previous life as as a, as a military trainer yourself. Yeah, just briefly, this came out of his visit to Kiev last week. And, and he said that one of the things, that, as well as weapons prize, supplies, one of the things the UK was going to do, is going to do, will be to train, and he, he put these figures on it, 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers every 120 days. So, to, so as we've mentioned before, this is now, we're into the long game here. So Ukraine needs to generate an, a new army, basically, and needs 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 a huge number of of, um, of infantiers to do that. And I just... 
it was worth marking, even though it was a few days ago. We we never really got round to, to to doing it at the time because there were other bits and pieces. But but I just just want to make the point that um, uh, yeah, when I was serving, I I did a bit of time training new recruits, and our as we called it phase one training, taking taking a civilian who may never never have handled a weapon before in their lives up to a, a very basic level of infantry skill was was about 120 days, three, three or four months is about is about that, um, and. I just wanted to make the point that the the level of skill at the at the end of that time is very basic. I mean, it, it, they um, so an individual who's never handled a weapon before in their life, never never served in uniform, will be able will be proficient and safe and and accurate with their personal weapon. They will they will not have worked with any crew served weapons, so i.e. I, larger weapons that require more than one person to to fire it, and their basic infantry tactics will be up to pairs fire and movement so you and your buddy um one covering you while one fires and then and then then you sort of you move while he covers you and you know, you move while she covers you and so on and so forth so very very low level basic infantry skills absolutely fundamental and that's why these are the first things that are taught and over and over and over again so they become second nature but it's really a really a low level skill and i just wanted to make the point that I mean, those numbers are great, 10,000 every every 120 days. But then um, in the British military model, they then go on to, wait for it, people, phase two training. And at phase two training, you then go and specialise in whatever you're going to be. So if you're an engineer, you go and learn how to build bridges. If you're, you know, if you're a logistician, you go out stack blankets and, 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 and have very important lists of vital equipments. If you're a logistician, I should hasten to add. Um, so, you know, phase one training, that first 120 days is, is very basic indeed. And so it, it's, it's good. And, and it is a, it's a real commitment from, from the UK training establishment because they're, they're maxed out training the British Army. Um, so it is a good commitment. But I just wanted to, to put some reality around, around that announcement. But, you know, it's good. I'm not knocking it. It's, it's, it's well worth it. But we shouldn't expect these people to be coming out and, uh, and conducting deep special ops raids um, as, soon as, they, as soon as they finish the 120 days. Thanks, Tom. And just very quickly before we move to our final thoughts, um, we've seen today the, the drone, these, these interesting, as you mentioned, these interesting drone strikes inside Russian territory. But on the Ukrainian side, the Ukrainians have claimed that they've, they've found some spies as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this was a report that came out yesterday. Um, Ukraine detained two people, one a senior government official and the other uh, a business leader in in Kiev, saying that they were um, passing information to the Russians. So the security services of Ukraine said that the, the senior official in the secretariat of the cabinet of ministries, uh, sorry, cap, cabinet of ministers, um, was the was the the government official and the business leader was a, a department head in the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And that's a business lobby. And they were detained as part of, a, quote, a multi-stage special operation, end of quote. So as we've seen, um, most notably at the start of this whole thing, where there were thought to be these these either, either um, Russian special ops forces or sleeper agents or, or you know, civilians that have been there for, for ages, um, same thing, I guess, Looking for President Zelensky and other and other targets of of note, there's um, there's still this this hunt on for these for these uh, people who are who are providing information to Russia and some very very clever ways of going about it. I mean, I haven't, I haven't got time to discuss it here, but 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 um, uh, people using sort of online gaming uh, applications and geotagging themselves as they're hunting for you know, X, Y, and Z in, as part of the game. It's also giving away live live information to um, to Russia if they if they're able to hoover that off 
off the net through these games. So there's a whole there's a, there's a, a big effort by Russia to to keep this um, you know, fifth column in old money. These these people running around in Ukraine um, giving up to date information. And like I say, the, the precision guided munitions that what few of them Russia have left, and they're not finding these weapons factories and uh, important railway junctions and, and warehouses. By luck, I mean someone is targeting these things, and they've not all been there for years and years and years, and, and geolocated up the yin yang for for decades. I mean somebody is going around and marking these places, um, and so this 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 these arrests yesterday just show the effort that Ukraine is putting into um, uh, uncovering these the, these these spies, basically. Um, and it's one for us to watch. It's a fascinating subject, and we we will come back to it. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Um, I think we've probably got to the end of our time here today. So, Dom and Nicola, can I ask for your final thoughts? Dom, would you like to go first? And then, Nicola, as, as you're coming out of your tour in Ukraine, would you like to have the very final words? Yes, thanks. Just very quickly for me. I mean, Nicola deserves a final word here. But um, very quickly for me, I mean, Snake Island is, is there seems to be an, an uptick in tempo there of um it might be to do with the harpoon missiles that ukraine have 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 uh, taken delivery of that might have been the impetus to try to try and take take the island but uh keep your eye on that and we we certainly are but there's a very definite uptick in violence to snake island over the last few days and that island is critical to whichever side holds it thanks tom and nicola would you like the final words thanks I've, I've said in the past few weeks how incredibly resilient people are and, and they really are. They're, they're strong. They have found incredible strength within themselves to deal with extreme circumstances, but they are also so tired and so exhausted and they just want this to be over. And I think the message that they were really giving to, to me and to other journalists was please don't forget about us. Please don't forget about this situation that this crisis that we're facing you know and please do everything you can to help us to to bring it to an end ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio you can listen to this conversation live at 1 p.m each weekday on twitter spaces Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.